Bienvenidos and welcome to Higher ID, the podcast where we talk about all things instructional design and higher ed. We're your hosts, Christy J. Woods and Dr. Jess Seitler, and we're excited to bring you our next episode. In this episode, we have two special guests here from UPSIAD and the EDC Network, Heather Schneider and Brian Malone, both instructional designers. And they are here to chat about a recent discussion chat on ID horror stories, Ooh. which we're super excited for. Um, but before we get there, we do want to hear from you too and just kind of get some introductions in there. So Heather, Brian, we'd love for you to introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing now. Heather, maybe do you want to go first? Sure. Thank you. Um, yes, I'm Heather Schneider. I'm currently an instructional designer at Washington State University. Um, in terms of my background in the education field, I started out in K-12 education. I was a high school science teacher and really enjoyed that and really enjoyed the curriculum development aspect of that. We had a lot of freedom in that in my district and I got to do a lot of um, development and curriculum mapping. And then we were facing a move out of state for my spouse's career. And so I had to sort of think about, do I want to get recertified as a teacher in this other state? And I knew we were going to be moving again within a year or so. I started to kind of think about other options and started doing freelance curriculum development for a while, mostly for ed tech companies and developing, you know, science curriculum materials, authoring assessments, things like that which I loved. And then I started thinking about, okay, if I want to do something full time again, you know, what can sort of combine a lot of these things that I'm interested in. And I was really interested in the instructional design aspect of the development that we did in, in the curriculum design, you know, kind of looking at the big picture, the student experience. And so saw this opportunity at Washington State University and applied and have been working there for about a year and a half and have had a lot of great experiences, you know, in both the ID and, and training side of things. So that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Thanks, Heather. I really appreciate it. Brian, let's hear from you. Hi, everybody. My name is Brian Malone. Um, thanks, Christy and Jess, for uh, having us on the show. Um, Heather and I have been collaborating together for a couple years on a variety of things. Um, so I have been out west. I live in on the Idaho side of the Idaho-Washington border. Um, and uh, I went to graduate school at the University of Idaho uh, and then began my career there as a um, full-time English um, lecturer, which was just a one-year-long contract. <laughs> uh, and then the pandemic actually hit right at the end of that one-year contract. And I was on the job market for teaching jobs. Um, and... I just sort of decided to search for staff jobs at the universities nearby to really just ride out the pandemic until I could get back on the teaching job search. Uh, and that's how I fell into instructional design, uh, which is part of what we'll talk about uh, uh, hopefully today um, in thinking about these professional development opportunities. Um, I'm very interested in the question of how do we uh, develop an identity as an instructional designer and so uh, I started at Washington State University in November 2020. Um, shortly afterward, uh, Heather joined the team. So we worked on the same team for a while. And so really cool. from the start, I, uh, I wanted to get involved in professional networks outside of my institution because 
I was really searching for what this new job title of mine meant. And mm -hmm. um, obviously something stuck because I'm, I'm still here. Um, but <laughs> Less than two months ago, I started a new position. I'm at Indiana University, still on an instructional design role um, yes. over there. So Heather and I are no longer immediate coworkers, but we continue to collaborate on some professional development, uh, development, and um, particularly through Opsia. Nice. Congrats on the new role, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, congratulations. And thank you both so much for sharing a little bit about yourselves, where you're, where you have been working. And Brian, I completely connect with like when you're new to that instructional design position, kind of searching out like, who am I as an instructional designer? And and um, being part of a network is an amazing opportunity to grow that. And speaking of networks. Um, you all had an incredible event with UPSIA, the EDC network, and many people might not know what UPSIA is or the EDC network are. So let's start with an overview about UPSIA and maybe a little bit about the EDC network and what they are and, and how can people get involved? Yeah. So Heather and I are uh, volunteers. UPSIA does have a staff, but um, it's it's a volunteer network by and large. So UPSIA stands for the University Professional uh, Continuing Education Association. There might be an and in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> this is a, an organization that's been around for a long time. It's a professional network um, nonprofit for higher education staff. And one aspect of UPSIA is um, networks. And there's a series of networks, and the networks are all organized around um, thematically around specific types of staff in higher education. One of those networks is the eDesign Collaborative, or EDC, and this is a network of learning design professionals. Uh, this is the network that I joined as soon as I found out about it when I first started as an instructional designer because it, to me, represented a way to answer that question. Like, what does, what does this field mean? Okay. Um, I started there as a volunteer um, in a, uh, the vice chair of communications. So I was... Um, organizing, coordinating our newsletter and trying to keep our uh, online discussion forums active. And this was a way to really keep a pulse on conversations that were emerging in the field. Um, Heather joined me on that very shortly after uh, she started at WSU. And um, I think this, this last uh, cycle, we switched into the professional development role. Um, so People can get involved in this, uh, firstly, by going to the UPSIA website and seeing if their institution is a member institution. A shocking number of institutions of higher education are member institutions. If your institution has a membership, you also have a membership um, and you just make a profile. Even if you your institution does not have a membership and you want to be involved uh, somehow, there are a wide range of free events that, um, free or low cost events that UPSIA will offer. Um, one of them, one of the free events being the uh, coffee chats that um, Heather and I are now running uh, and what this conversation today started um, because of the, the ID horror stories was one of our coffee chats. Um, and those just brought together people working in, in learning design around a specific theme. And um, after that conversation, uh, Christy and, and Jess, you kindly invited us to your podcast. So 
yeah. was kind of EDC and FCA and uh, how Heather and I are involved. Um, and, and yeah, um, if you are in learning design in any way and you want to join our chats, you are welcome to regardless of your FCA membership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, Brian. And um, I got involved with UPSIA by accident <laughs> because, well, not by accident, sort of by accident, I should say. And because I was like, hey, we have a podcast. And then um, folks were like, hey, this would be great for the EDC network. And I was like, I don't know what that is. Sure. And uh, went to a meeting and they were like, we have an opening for a volunteer position if you want to do it. And I was like, cool. And so that's how um, the very happenstance meeting has happened with um, Heather, Brian, and myself. And now after the horror stories, I was like, oh, this is such a good topic. And I love that it's like Halloween themed too. Um, and people on my team were so jazzed by the idea of horror stories and just getting to chat about um, some of the things that are a little bit more challenging and then kind of brainstorm on like, how can we make this better? So um, we'd love to kind of recap what that coffee chat was like for you all. And I know that you all started with kind of an opening like icebreaker question uh, about if there was an e-design haunted house, what might that include? So I'd be curious, what were some of the answers that came from that opener? Yeah, that was a really fun thing to start with. And Brian and I wanted to share that we sort of inherited this topic of instructional design horror stories. It's been around for a while. We didn't invent it. Yeah. Um, but it's always been really popular and and a lot of fun. Um, so we have a pretty long list here. I'm going to share some of them. I'll share a few of my favorites, and then we can add the rest in the show notes for this episode. Um, but people were just kind of throwing these out in the chat, and then we expanded on some of them later. So I'll read them out kind of verbatim as as they were typed. Um, one of them, which we have probably all experienced, an LMS change right before the term begins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and as you know, as these were coming in the chat, I was like picturing this house being built with all of these things flying around <laughs> around <laughs> me. So if that helps you build your mental picture when you hear these, um, another one was spotty internet, mm. uh, a glitchy mouse, flashing lights, and four point font size. Oof. Another one came through similarly, deep purple background with yellow font. <laughs> so some some accessibility and readability issues there. 50 minute recorded lectures. I think we've probably all encountered that. Um, a SME who is non-responsive, a professor who gives you links to articles and says, can you just create a course from this? <laughs> That's a fun one. Um, signs with the email subject emergency respond now in all caps is how that one was typed out. <laughs> yeah. We had a follow-up of that one, which was um, the subject line, quick question, because we know <laughs> that quick question is usually not so quick. <laughs> um, and then we have a faculty member who wants to do a phone only appointment where we can't see the screen. Those can be difficult. A faculty member who asks if I have a personal phone number. Someone shared that one. Mm-hmm. And then the last one I'll share here, which was expanded upon a bit in the conversation, was scope creep. And I remember someone saying in the chat that scope creep might be the creepiest thing in the haunted house. 
<laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I sorry, I'm pausing, just getting stressed out about it. <laughs> Anybody else's pulse racing right now? <laughs> oh my gosh, my faculty. We just we're almost finished with the course. Oh wait, I updated some things. <laughs> and maybe a lot of things <laughs> in module one <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing all of those i was i was imagining each one as you shared and i was like yes those are so true so thinking of just some of those examples can you share examples of some of the design horror stories that you heard about in high in the higher education context or like what were some of the key issues and challenges in these cases? So the first, uh, as Heather and I were planning this event, uh, we realized that the framing was going to be really important. Mm -hmm. um, people can come in with, uh, or they can take horror stories in all kinds of directions. So we really wanted to um, frame it a particular way. And something that I really value is leaving space for people who are new to the profession um, I wanted, I, I think, I thought that my big horror story, um, personally was that sort of, um, imposter syndrome of entering the field and not knowing mm. what the job title meant. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I wanted to leave space for, for people. Um, there are just so many people transitioning into our field right now. Uh, and I just knew that early career anxieties were, um, were things people would want to to bring up. So actually one of our questions was um, specifically and inviting people who are newer to the, the field to share what their early career anxieties were. Um, and we were also wanting to leave space for more seasoned uh, practitioners in our field to say, I had these anxieties or I'm hearing your anxiety and here's how it played out for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that was kind of a really important aspect of our framing for ID horror stories. Uh, and I think that um, I found that, that that approach of um, early career instructional design, um, whether you are early career or reflecting on your early career, is a pretty ripe field for, um, for the horror stories, real or imagined. Yeah, so I'm curious if there are some themes that came up from from that, those new folks coming in and some of those more seasoned folks? Yes. Yeah, so some of the big ones, as I mentioned before, scope creep was one of them that kind of spiraled. And a lot of people were sort of asking, you know, how do you deal with scope creep and just saying no. And a lot of times that comes with being new. You don't want to say no. You know, we really value our relationships with the faculty members, right? So if they kind of ask if we can do something, even if it's slightly out of our scope, but we do know how to do it. A lot of us have a tendency to be like, you know, sure, I can do that for you. And, you know, taking on a lot of extra things that maybe we originally weren't supposed to. So, um, yeah. you know, a lot of people in there kind of shared how over time, you know, articulating roles at the beginning, you know, here's what I do to support. Here are some adjacent teams who support these other areas, if you need that, I can connect you with this or that resource. Um, there was an ID on the call who mentioned, you know, when she started out, she was really nervous about not knowing where to send people, what the resources were. And so kind of making that a priority early on as you go to hear what kind of questions you're getting and start 
curating resources within your institution. That way you can share those with people and not feel like you have to handle everything. And I think I think that was huge in, you know, helping, you know, those of us who have been doing it for a while, learning strategies is where can we point people so we don't feel like we're just saying no, passing people off. We are still supporting them, but making sure it's, you know, the right people and resources that are doing that. Yeah. I think that it's really important to to contextualize it within the department or within the university unit that you're in. Because um, I think sometimes uh, less established departments that aren't known for instructional design might have more of that scope creep because they're just trying yes. to get people in. Uh, and I've worked in places like that where I was like bringing batteries to a classroom <laughs> because their projector died or something like that. And that is certainly not the role of the instructional designer. That's definitely scope creep in a different sense. Um, but that was part of our directive from our leadership because they just wanted mm -hmm. to get people in and then we can start working on changing that narrative. But that's really, really difficult to do if you don't set it from the beginning and kind of put some boundaries around what the roles and responsibilities are of the instructional designer and then of whoever you're working with. Yeah, exactly. That That's really what we were hearing there and, and finding that balance of what can I offer where can I outsource, you know, and then what is, what is my responsibility and, and allowing time and space for that as well. Yeah, totally. I was going to mention uh, one of the things I will say, and I think I would like the advice I wish I would have known or had earlier mm -hmm. in my career. So I didn't realize that, and, and it may be different at each institution, but that, Instructional design is so iterative that often that first development doesn't have all the wish list items. It doesn't have all the technology. It doesn't have all the things that a faculty may imagine or even the instructional designer may imagine due to time restrictions, right? And so I've automatically now, um, sometimes I get really, really speedy beat like uh, developments and um, like five weeks. <laughs> so Which fast is, um and 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 it's it's not a good idea but every once in a while i get one and um i immediately start a wish list and i say this is our wish list for the things that we don't have time to accomplish i don't want you to quit imagining or dreaming about how amazing your class can be because it can be that um but we have a continuing improvement process and I'm going to make this part of your wish list and that next person that works with you on that continuous improvement those are the things you can, you know, have on this list and hopefully you can work on adding those things little by little. Ooh, I like the wish list item. I feel like that's another episode. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Great idea. Awesome. It, it would have saved me so much stress, you know, yeah. so a long ago if I would have known that like I could just make a wish list because we're we know we're gonna come back to this course or uh, at certain institutions, like we at the U of A, we have a continuous improvement um, second tier um, return to the return to the course after it runs the first time or second time and, and look mm -hmm. at it and see what we can change. Oh, so sorry to be tangential. I was just processing that. Um, so um, are there some examples of instructional design horror stories that 
uh, highlight the importance of accessibility and inclusivity in course design. You have mentioned in that list, the purple and yellow, <laughs> <laughs> that really draws my attention. And um, maybe how do, how might the cultural and institutional factors influence the occurrence of some of those, some of those factors, right? Um, so I, I feel like some really specific examples come up, right? Heather shared some earlier, but one of the early projects that Heather and I worked on together was uh, collectively learning that uh, Microsoft products don't speak well to Adobe products when Oof. you're, um, so you spend all this time making a really accessible PowerPoint and then you think that saving it as a PDF will <laughs> yeah. mean you have a PDF <sighs> that is accessible and yes. we found out that you don't. And so that led to a lot of uh, labor hours and a lot of research and a lot of leveraging different teams and um and under those circumstances we were have we had materials that we were trying to get out to a list of people who had participated in a in a training event um and so there was just a big delay on on getting those out so there are uh there are things like that that come up but i think in terms of accessibility and inclusion i think that there's been a much wider social dialogue around DEI and access, I think there's been more and more acceptance that the environment of learning online is unique and, and different in ways from the environment of teaching in person. Um, another thing that really matters to me is exploring the difference between um, academic rigor and unnecessary obstacles that we put up. Mm. Um, so barriers to learning that exist by design. And I feel like this is one of the key things an instructional designer can offer is um, looking at what is a what is a barrier to success um, versus, you know, how can, how can we remove those barriers so that we can actually focus on the, um, the rigor of your academic content. Mm. Uh, and I think a lot of barriers come up online that are often invisible when you don't have as much face-to-face um, -face time with students. And so I feel like, um, to me, to me, a horror story, like the, the real horror story is um, <laughs> any designer wants to build a system that creates a, a seamless experience. And I think that this is true, whether it's instructional design or design across other other aspects of design. And um, the best design is often invisible. And I know that a lot of times we recognize design only when something breaks, right? Mm -hmm. So if something goes wrong, um, we're trying to be proactive. We're trying to anticipate. This is a lot of what UDL is all about as well. We're trying to make a space that is as seamless and inclusive of everybody as we can. And then when anything goes wrong, um, I, I, to me, that's how I conceptualize the true ID horror story is when our our proactivity and our anticipation uh, has, has failed in some way. Yeah. So, yeah, because yeah. then it's not just impactful to the ID and, and to the faculty or to the SME, it's then impactful to the student too, which is like the point of instructional design in higher ed is usually student success, right? Student retention, um, graduation rates and things like that. And so, yeah, if that if you can't anticipate or if you fail to be intentional in anticipating some of those barriers, 
that is the real horror story there. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, um, there's multiple factors. It's not like the designer necessarily failed. Everything's part of a complex system too. Yep. Um, some other specific examples of this that come to mind. Uh, I remember doing a course design with um, some really old handwritten notes yeah. that the um, that the the professor recorded, just like an overhead view of the handwritten notes, and the. Um, the notes had a date from almost a decade prior on the top of them. Oh, <laughs> they also, they also um, had been rendered through a couple of different uh, video processing tools. And so the videos had just become blurry, but um, we were on a tight deadline. The uh, faculty member didn't feel like the content had actually changed substantially. Um, and so, you know, this led to a class with um, with really blurry videos of handwritten notes. Um, so, so these kinds of things come up, and we're we're aware of them. And but, but I think it's all those things. It's um, there's a designer involved, there's a faculty member involved, there's uh, a time crunch, but there's also the systems that the institution creates for you. So, like, how far in advance did you get this design process in the first place? Uh, how um, how much support do you have for accessibility? Do you actually have accessibility consultants or teammates who can uh, do some of the more tedious and labor-intensive accessibility fixes? Or are you the one who's going in and making sure that that PowerPoint actually, all the smart art from your PowerPoint uh, saved accessibly <laughs> in the PDF format? Like, is that on you? Um, so there's all kinds of things that are beyond, I think, any one person's um, any one person's control, but I do think that uh, yeah. that that the horror stories come when um, when as as proactive a designer as we each try to be, uh, something breaks or doesn't come out right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's just in the course, right? <laughs> so if you think about all the other touch points that students will probably have before they even get to the course and after they've gone through your course and are on to the next thing. There are so many opportunities for access to education and how do we make sure that that's um, thought through as well. Um, so all good points. I appreciate that, Brian. I'm curious too, because um, I don't want this just to be a horror story. I'm just like talking about all the things that can possibly go wrong because there's many, many things, right? Um, I'd love to shift a little bit to some of the strategies. Um, and, you know, Jess, you kind of talked about your wish list of like, here are things that like I know from experience now that I can kind of help um, mitigate some of these and prevent some of these horror stories from even happening. I'm curious if that um, was part of the conversation with the coffee chat and what were some of the strategies that were chatted about? Yeah, I can start here and feel free to jump in, Brian. But a lot of it boils down to, you know, communication and, you know, how do things start off with the faculty member? Are you able to have a kickoff call where you can answer a lot of their questions and, you know, kind of start things off on the right foot for the design? That That is huge, really. A lot of people mentioned just kind of how things start out with a project. But then as things progress, 
um, being able to articulate why, you know, like with the, the questions about accessibility or maybe inclusive language, you know, if we can share with our faculty members, you know, we don't suggest doing this it this way and, and this is why, or, you know, there's some research about this, or we've seen examples where this language, you know, gets better dialogue from the students, you know, things like that. Faculty get on board so quickly when they know you're not just telling them these things because someone says we have to do this, you know, here's the impact it's going to have on the students. And anytime you can make that clear, you know, if you have research to share or examples from other courses that you've worked on, um, it really just helps get everybody like kind of visualizing the same thing and seeing, okay, here's the goal and here are some, some steps to make it happen. Mm, yeah, the research, I feel like if you can bring the research in, faculty, especially I'm at a research institution, so they want the research, they want to hear mm -hmm. it. So mm -hmm. I, I think there's also sometimes it's it's the simple things, right, that um, a lot of us or a lot of faculty and, and ourselves sometimes don't realize that aren't really clear once we shift to online kind of that that hidden curriculum topic it's really it's really emphasized online when we're in person there's so much interaction and communication and the faculty can just explain oh i meant this mm -hmm. oh this you know it seems like the student should know what to do and the faculty can just adjust and shift and guide the students so they're there kind of every second of of the course and and then online sometimes we don't or I have to kind of I share storytell with the faculty, you know. Um, sometimes students are on there at one or two in the morning, and yeah. um, and and they get stuck, and and they don't know where to go. And so just by adding really clear language, you know, using that um, transparency and teaching and learning framework, the tilt framework is it's really helpful. And, and then you don't get a 2 a.m. email because I know the faculty <laughs> isn't going to answer that 2 a.m. email at, at that time. And um, some of that, you know, that can alleviate a lot of stress for the student and the instructional designer and, and the faculty as well. So sometimes it is just the simple things that can alleviate a lot of those barriers too. Um, I really like that you, uh, Christy, are, are pivoting us to um, strategies uh, and I love what you're saying, Jess, about the hidden curriculum, the tilt framework, and what you're demonstrating in the context of an in-person class as a faculty member who's who's very caring, who wants their students to succeed, who will clear up misconceptions. It goes back to what's invisible in the online um, environment and in this conversation around horror stories. One sort of figure has emerged for me, and it's a figure that I'm going to argue is not real. It's a it's a it's the monster Smee. Right, the, the the monster <laughs> subject matter expert um, or client, uh, and I think this also goes back to early career anxieties. I know one of mine was, I just taught full time for a year, and now I'm going to be working with people that have been teaching for so long. Like, how are they going to see my expertise? So there's this there's this um, one. Uh, horror story is us imagining this this like monster me this person who's going to be like i don't care about accessibility i'm not going to answer your emails i don't even view you <laughs> as an expert like and this person is not real um mm -hmm. I, I by and large the people we work with 
um, whether they're faculty members or you're working on like a more community-based program. These are people who are experts, who are incredibly smart, who are passionate, who care about students, who care about their learners' success. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's um, important for us at, not to imagine all the things that could go wrong because most of the people that we work with are going to be very much on the same team and working towards the same objectives. Um, so I've been I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this imagined monster SME, and I know part of our framing for this horror stories conversation, uh, we we really didn't want you know we we talked about early career anxieties and framed some questions that way well, in sure. large part because we didn't want people to come in with horrible stories of working with SMEs. Mm -hmm. I personally, I mean, in my experience, um, those particular horrible experiences have been outliers. Um, yeah, really happened at all. And um, yeah, I, I just didn't want us to spend our time thinking about uh, all the all the things that um, that could go wrong. And I wanted to acknowledge that that is a that's an imaginary, that's sort of an imaginary figure. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like the worst I've had has been somebody that just didn't understand our process. And if we think about okay. hidden curriculum, there is hidden curriculum in everything that we do, including our instructional design course development. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, how are um, they supposed to know what we do and who we are? <laughs> yeah, and and every place is different, right? So if they developed with you at Indiana, but then came over here at Colorado, we might have different processes, mm -hmm. we might have different supports. Um, and so they may be used to doing things completely on their own or used to being able to delegate that off. Like all of that is just so different. And so I think that it's taking it a step further and helping them with the hidden curriculum in their own content and okay. own design, well, but then us thinking about how can I just make this as plain as day and give it to you all up front. There is no, you know, second guessing what I'm trying to help you with or what your role is or supports you have, you have it all there. And that can definitely happen in that um, first kickoff meeting, but I think it happens throughout. Yeah. And even, even by extension that, that faculty me member I mentioned working with earlier who had the, the blurry videos, like the blurry videos haunt me. It's a horror <laughs> story of mine. But what's also true is that SME is somebody who was so happy to be working with an instructional designer who was extremely communicative, who brought in other members of their department uh, to observe the class and offer feedback on the assignments and pilot the materials, who um, who was just really responsive to the support we offered and who really um, who really wanted students to succeed. So built a class that was very consistent in, uh, we use Canvas as a module structure sort of thing. and. Uh, they were very consistent and um, learners knew what to expect in the class. The assessment structure was clear. Like there were so many things. So even though those blurry videos haunt me as a designer thinking about accessibility, like that was not even close to a monstrous me. That was an excellent person who I would love to work with again. Mm -hmm. uh, so even our, even our, our things that we take with us are accompanied by all kinds of things that are not horrors. Absolutely. I love that you both touched upon that in such a nice way, because um, while we recognize that a lot of time the faculty um, are extremely experienced and experts in their own field, 
I think it's also really valuable and especially for newer instructional designers to realize that as instructional designers, we're expert in that learning field. And when we can share that with faculty in a partnership and and really gain their trust as partners and say, you know, um, because a lot of the online development is new. I mean, there's some faculty that are amazing developers. I've seen them in action. I'm like, wow, you you are you're an instructional designer too. But also we have uh, faculty that are new to teaching online as well as new to any sort of LMS management. Gosh. And um, when we can take that fear from them and say, hey, listen, you don't worry about that. This is what we're gonna collaborate on and I'll take care of that stuff. Yeah. Whatever whatever that may be, managing the LMS and getting the course up and working. I just need, you know, you to share your vision with me and and the content with me. And I'm gonna, you know, do my magic. <laughs> but I, I think it's really valuable for thinking about imposter syndrome, even as instructional designers, to really um take that power that you're the expert to as an instructional designer and and see how you can use that within your partnerships with your faculty um i think it feels really good when you feel like i can do that now you know okay. um so speaking of faculty and instructional designers um, often as instructional designers we're really involved in some of that professional development and um, continuous improvement. And I was wondering how how can institutions and educators use instructional design, like these horror stories, how can we use them um, as a tool for professional development or continuous improvement? I know, Heather, you are working on a, in a context right now where, where you're facing a lot of, um, there's there seems to be a belief that has come from somewhere that the lectures have to be 50 minutes long because that's how long <laughs> our in-person time is. So I'll, I want to invite you to like speak to to that and whatever else is coming to mind for you. Because I know for me, the real value of having a conversation like a horror story, uh, like the horror story conversation or any of our EDC chats, we're bringing professionals at different levels of their career together across institutions to talk about things they've experienced. And what we're realizing is a lot of us are experiencing very similar things. Um, and so to me, the real value of, of professional development is um, we're building a sense of professional identity. We're collaborating in more of a shared vision for the field. We're recognizing what it is that makes us designers based on the kinds of problems all of us are working together to solve all of the time. Um, specific to the horror stories uh, and the haunted house that we asked everybody to contribute to um, case studies, right? I mean, I think case studies are really valuable. You can extract those, uh, analyze those. And I think um, in terms of faculty members, communicating expectations, um, it, it, if we can if we can create systems, like the designer who gets paired with the faculty member or or community member or expert, that is the result of a system that is at place that neither of those parties have a ton to do with necessarily. So if we can have a system where uh, designers, de design kind of units or administrative units are, they have bridges with faculty units and uh, um, departments 
so that the role, the instructor designer relationship is, is clear and the reasons uh, for, for that relationship to exist are laid out. Um, if those things can be communicated, then we can clear up a lot of uh, misconceptions from the start. Or it's, I mean, it's a design problem in itself. Um, how can we clear up misconceptions uh, from the start so that this relationship kicks off on a very mutual way and both all parties know you know, why they're working together. But um, mm -hmm. I don't know if, if Heather, you had your own uh, sense of, of, anyway, that's my value. In, in the professional development activities, we're all realizing that like we're facing very similar things and it's helping us craft our own sense of self as as a member of this field. Uh, and that's, that's to me the value in, in these professional development activities. Yeah, I was just going to add, you know, it's so helpful when you whether you experienced the the horror story yourself or someone else did, you know, all of that is kind of data that can go into your toolkit of something you may never have anticipated as being a problem. And now knowing that it exists, you can kind of work around it. The the thing you were sort of alluding to was, you know, a situation where, you know, working with a department that sort of had some misconceptions about what the online course setting needed to look like. And you know, once I was able to, you know, hear that from one faculty member, you know, I, as I continue to work with that department, now I'm anticipating, I know they're all kind of coming in with this <laughs> misconception and like early on we can, we can sort of talk about that and think about how the course is going to look. So, you know, anytime something like this happens, it's such a good learning experience that you can just take, you know, for yourself and for your, you know, the department or your institution, but also when we share in platforms like this, or with the coffee chats, you know, it just broadens all of the things that we get to hear about and anticipate and plan for and, and um, you know, hopefully not turn into a horror story for us <laughs> because we've heard it from someone else and maybe now we won't have to encounter it. You don't go into the basement, <laughs> right? You, you drive away. You don't like park your car and get out and see what that noise was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I think that the um, I, even just with Jess and I with the podcast, there are so many times where I'm like, what? You're doing that? How do you do that? Tell me, like, talk to me about it. I want to understand how to do that better. And I think there's so much to be said by community and working together to solve the problem um, or have multiple ways of solving the problem. And I just want like this gigantic resource hub that has Jess's wish list and a bunch of research that says why we're doing this and it's by topic and other things. But those those are like, you know, what I envision is just being able to share out those resources because I think it will make everybody's job better and the student and learner experience better and the faculty's experience better too. And um, yeah, I think we need to make a resource hub. <laughs> Not like we're all busy or anything, but <laughs> I second that. That would that would be fantastic. Well, um, the EDC chats are amazing. I've been to several myself. Um, if people want to hear about upcoming coffee chats, and I know that you all have um, another version of that too with the think tanks, which is a little bit different. How would people hear about those, get involved in those if they were interested? 
Yeah, so we're currently working on planning the topics for the 2024 chats. We take a little bit of a break in November and December just because of people's schedules. It gets a little bit difficult for people to attend. Um, but if people want to go to upsea.edu, upcea.edu uh, slash events, the coffee chats are posted there, uh, usually a few months in advance, depending on how far ahead we are in planning those. And I think Brian said this earlier, you don't have to be a member of Upsea to join the coffee chats. Those are open. Um, some of the other events are, are closed just for members. Um, and if you are a member and your institution is a member, you can log into Upsea, create your account, and you can sign up to be part of the eDesign network. And what that will do is it will get you on the newsletter mailing list, which Christy is currently heading up. So you'll get reminders in the newsletter about the coffee chats, the think tanks, you know, any other events that are happening. We also have um, what's called core. It's a basically a discussion forum through Upsia that's for the members and eDesign has its own forum. We post about the coffee chats there. We usually post a summary about it afterward and members are always posing questions about anything related to design, educational technology, all kinds of things. And members just share, you know, anyone can respond and share. So it's a great place to go if you're looking for resources and just to um, collaborate with other instructional designers in the, in the higher ed field. Yeah, perfect. We'll make sure to share all those links in the show notes below. Um, that way, if folks are interested, they can kind of explore a little bit further. And we'll also put um, Brian and Heather's LinkedIn uh, links in there too. So if you want to connect with them, you are welcome to do that as well. Um, anything else before we wrap up our conversation? Any lingering thoughts or um, comments you want to leave us off with? I just want to thank you both for having us. Uh, I know Brian and I both really enjoy your podcast. I'd heard of it and listened to a few episodes before you had even, you know, mentioned it in the EDC network. And so when you did that, you know, I was kind of like, oh, I've heard of that. That's so awesome. So I love how all these things kind of come together. So thanks for having us. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Thank you both for being here. It's been awesome to have such a fruitful conversation and um, and thanks for watching or listening to the podcast ahead of time. That was so cool, Heather. When you when we met, you're like, "Hey, I've already listened to this." I was like, "Wow, wow. that's it's such a small world <laughs> in instructional design." I feel like you um, get to meet a lot of the same faces, which is awesome. Thank you both so much for for coming on and creating such a, a, an, a, another space with us of, of social learning and sharing. Um, through these great stories and about the coffee chat with Upsia. That's, it's been wonderful. So thank you both so much. Yep. I just wanted to echo uh, Heather's thanks for having us on. Um, and yeah, it was really fun to talk about this. To me, the horror stories, um, as I hope we've touched on a little bit in this conversation, it's, uh, it's not about coming into a space and sharing everything that's gone wrong. It's really coming into a space and saying, I'm going through this. Have you been through this? It's strengthening our ability to converse with each other and our ability to network across institutions and ability yeah. to define our field and where we're going. And um, so that's why I love to be involved in these things. And I really appreciate the the chance to come on today and um, speak more about that. Uh, 
Yes. That was a beautiful wrap up, Brian. Couldn't have said it better myself, honestly. Uh, well, thank you both again. And thank you all for listening and join us on our next episode of Higher ID. Bye. Adios. Thank you.